Welcome to the Wednesday Night Bible Study with Don Williams. This podcast is in honor of Don's legacy and teaching. He lived what he preached. Enjoy. Through Timothy, okay? I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all uh, men or all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. The testimony given in its proper time, and for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a teacher of the truth faith to the Gentiles." I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with propriety. Uh, May God bless to us uh, this reading from his word tonight. Well, as you can probably see now if you followed the reading along, Uh, The point of real contention has to do with the role of women, and especially what uh, Paul teaches in verses 11 through 15, and we'll uh, deal with that tonight and talk about that. But uh, we need to see that in the context of the whole of of chapter 2, where Paul is talking, first of all, about everyone and and the responsibility for for prayer, if you will, Uh, that we're to be a praying church, that the Ephesians were to be a praying church, and that the blessing of God would be upon uh, would be upon the nation or upon the empire or upon uh, the province uh, where the Ephesians lived as they are a praying church. And uh, so uh, the church is called to prayer, and then men are called especially to prayer, uh, and, uh, and, and, and wrong attitudes are addressed in verse 8. And then women, uh, who've, who've uh, been a part of the whole body called to prayer in the opening paragraph, are called to adorn their lives with good deeds. Uh, and then the question of women learning and, and teaching and what have you is addressed at the end of the, uh, of the paragraph. So, first of all, in the first half of the, uh, of the chapter, Paul deals with the responsibility of the whole church to pray, and then men and their responsibility, and then women and their responsibility. So, uh, here we have um, uh, kind of th- three different uh, objects of, of, of the teaching as Paul addresses it here. So, let's start with the whole church in verses 1 through 7 in chapter 2. And uh, as we uh, said, let me just take a step backwards in terms of just a word about the context. Paul uh, is dealing with false teachers who who have risen up within the leadership of the church who are undermining uh, the work of the gospel. Uh, Paul uh, uh, has asked Timothy to stay and be his delegate in, uh, in dealing with the heresy and the corruption that's going on in the church. And so in chapter 1, uh, Paul uh, talks about uh, those who cause dissension and who misinterpret the law and who are uh, uh, undermining the church. And then he uh, identifies his own authority and the authority then that has been given to Timothy uh, to pastor and to lead the church. And so having introduced that in chapter 1, in other words, having established uh, the problem, false teaching, his authority and the authority that has the Lord has given to Timothy, and Timothy is Paul's true son in the faith as he identifies himself at the beginning of the letter, having kind of established, the, in a sense, the structure of authority, now Paul then goes on into the teaching itself. And remember, in the, in the context, which is this, you know, the problems of heresy that have arisen in the church, there's kind of a double thing going on here. On the one hand, uh, Paul is giving, you might say, just positive, directive instruction to the church. But the other thing to realize is that there's also, in a sense, an argument through the letter, uh, and it surfaces directly at various times in the letter against those who are undermining the church. So this isn't just a kind of a manual on church discipline that's come out of a vacuum or out of the blue. Paul writes this letter knowing that there are those who are undermining the fellowship and the life of the congregation. So there's a polemical or a kind of a debate theme going on here 
part of the problem in interpreting the letter is to know at what points are, is Paul debating uh, you know, abuse going on in the, in the church, and at what points is he entering into controversy with those abuses, and at what points is he simply giving, you might say, standard continuing teaching. And that especially will affect, among other things, the way you view this whole question about women having authority uh, in the church and teaching men. So we'll get to that in a, in a few minutes. But uh, first of all, then, uh, Paul uh, uh, calls us to prayer, calls the church, the Ephesians, to prayer, and calls us to prayer. And the theme of this opening paragraph is really, everybody is to pray for the salvation of everybody. <laughs> that the church is to engage, that we as the body of Christ are to engage in intercession on behalf of, uh, of, 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 uh, uh, of uh, uh, all people. Look at it in, in uh, first of all, request prayers, I urge then, intercession, thanks be made for everyone. And uh, uh, that, of course, uh, could have a lot of different specific applications, but Paul then narrows the scope from the general to the specific, namely for those who are in authority in verse 2, uh, that, uh, that our life might be peaceful and, uh, um, and, and quiet in this world, but uh, but it's not only that that authority would function properly, bringing uh, peace and quiet, uh, uh, allowing us to then live a godly and holy life, but it's also for the salvation of all. Look at verse 3. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved. So we pray for everyone because God wants all men to be saved. So um, you might say our primary responsibility there, th therefore, as a church, is is intercession, is to pray here, and and this includes worship, thanksgiving, uh, but these are all prayers that are uh, that are raised or, or praises that are raised into the presence of God, and uh, when Paul says, "I urge," then first of all, the first of all means uh, first of all not in terms of chronology, but in terms of priority. So this is top priority. Uh, uh, you know, this uh, has the urgent stamp placed upon it as the memo comes across your desk. This you're supposed to give first attention to right off the bat. And, and that's what Paul's saying here. I urge then, and it's strong, top priority, requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. So uh, again, this is the, 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 con the, the, uh, the content of our life together before the Lord is intercession with thanksgiving, is to bring our requests with our gratitude to the Lord. And the word here, um, requests, uh, uh, the, the root of it means to have an audience with the king. So when you come into the presence of a great monarch, you come uh, bearing your petitions, your requests to him, and you ask for him to grant uh, uh, you favor in fulfilling those petitions. This is exactly what Paul is saying here that we're to do. So we're to petition God on behalf of all men in order that our lives might be, and, and there might be a peaceful life in this world, so that the message of salvation may go out to all people, and that all may ultimately be saved. Uh, so that's that's number one. And of course, the church is in division. The church is, you know, dealing with controversy. Uh, there's false teaching going on, a lot of confusion, what have you. So Paul is saying, you know, stop that. <laughs> Come back to the first priority, and that is to intercede. Uh, before the Father, to bring your thanksgiving to the Father, uh, to pray for the salvation of all, and 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 uh, and to pray for rulers, and out of that, that uh, uh, that we you may have a peaceful and quiet life in this world. Uh, and so there's there's a kind of you might say a corrective note in terms of the division and confusion and and dissension going on, but there's also the directive note right at the core of this in terms of who we are and what we're to be. Um, the best way that you can bless the government is to pray. <laughs> Pay your taxes, but pray. <laughs> okay? Uh, the, the best way that you can bless this world is to pray. And again, you know, it, it ought to be kind of stamped in red in our Bibles, top priority. And, um, you know, not just the Ephesians, but we tonight need to have this re reminder, and I need to have this reminder so many other things can crowd out significant intercession in my life. And I, and I confess that to you tonight. And, uh, and I have to battle my schedule and my time to, to pull this priority around again and again. And it's a lot easier to make jokes about the government than to pray for those in government. It's a lot easier to be cynical about Washington than to pray for Washington. You know, and so I really think that, you know, 
we need the Lord to call us back to this, away from kind of the cynicism and the, and the humor and, uh, and all the things that go on out there, and, and also the kind of uh, the, the high priority that we give to things that are not of high priority in our lives. To get back to the central thing, Paul says here, uh, here's the top priority, namely, make your petitions and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving, and bring that into the presence of God, and as you do that, uh, have in mind uh, uh, that we are standing as intercessors for, for all of those, uh, and especially those in authority, and uh, especially those who have not received salvation. So, uh, so we have a critical role to play in God's governance of the world, and that is we're called to be intercessors before the Lord on behalf of those who carry authority and on the behalf of the salvation of, uh, of the world. And, and that's a central spiritual role that God has called us to play. Uh, the, the implication, of course, being here too, and, and the church was facing persecution at this point. It was sporadic. Uh, it wasn't sustained and systematic as it became later by the Roman, Roman state. But when Paul talks about praying for those in authority, kings and those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives, one of the fruits of that, as far as Paul is concerned, is that God would call government to do what government is called to do, namely to uh, punish wrongdoers and protect those who do right, as Paul says in Romans chapter 13. And so part of our prayer is that God would hold the government to its divinely appointed responsibility. If that's the case, then we will live peaceful lives. As government uh, uh, is corrupted by, by human design and by uh, the power of the enemy, then government will... Uh, will oppose God's purpose and God's church in this world and persecution and what have you will be the consequences of that. So what we need to pray for is that government will be held true to God's appointed task and, uh, uh, and, uh, and, and the blessing then will be ours to be able to preach the gospel uh, and bring, uh, bring uh, the world to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so, so that's really the first three verses here. Um, or the first four verses, excuse me. Having said that, then Paul uh, reminds us of the gospel. Paul, when, when the subject of salvation comes up in verse uh, 4, he wants all to be saved, to come to a knowledge of the truth. Then Paul, once again, in a sense, calls, calls us back to the gospel. And not only is this characteristic of Paul that he will undergird his exhortations, you might say, with the truth of the gospel, but it also is corrective for those who are corrupting the gospel. So Paul reminds us, or in a sense calls us to prayer and intercession and, uh, 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 so that all may be saved, and then he speaks a word for the gospel and his own authority to preach it in verses 5 through, uh, five through 7. For there's one God, okay? This is the gospel. One God, not many gods. So we're monotheists, okay? Number one. Number two, and one mediator. So there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men. And when Paul goes on and says, the man Christ Jesus, he speaks of Christ's humanity in terms of the mediator, because in his deity, he's not our mediator. It's in his humanity that he then represents us before the Father. And so Jesus Christ came and assumed our, uh, our humanity. The, he was incarnate in our flesh and blood in order that he might then bring us into the presence of the Father. So there's one God, there's one mediator between God and man. There's one through whom we have access uh, into uh, the presence of the one God whom we are to pray uh, to and whom we are to worship. Uh, let me make a comment about Jesus Christ as the mediator in verse 5. Let me tell you an essential difference between Christianity and all the other religions of the world. Here it is. In Christianity, or for Christians, there is no direct relationship with God. And all the other religions of the world offer, in some way or another, a direct relationship with God, or, uh, or a spiritual reality, or, or the ground of being, or how, what, however they talk about it. But if you think about it, this is kind of startling, and I need to explain it just slightly, okay? You and I have only have an indirect relationship with God. Now, when I say that, what I mean by that is that our relationship with God is always mediated through the Lord Jesus Christ. So when I say no direct relationship with God, what I mean by that specifically is God the Father, okay? 
So we only come into the presence of God the Father through God the Son, through the God-man, Jesus Christ. And what mystics and, uh, and New Agers and uh, people who are on spiritual quests and what have you, what they're seeking is a direct relationship with God. But there is no direct relationship with God because God is holy and we are sinners. There's only a mediated relationship, or may I use the word, an indirect relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's absolutely central that you and I have a mediator. Because when you think about it, I mean, our God is absolutely holy. He's a consuming fire. No one can see God and live. How do we stand in the presence of a holy God as sinners? And the answer is, we stand in the presence of a holy God as sinners through the mediator, through Jesus Christ, the sinless one. So it's as if God you know, views us through Christ, and Christ is the filter through whom we then can come into the presence of God. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. We pray in Jesus' name because it's by His name, by His authority, that we offer our prayers to the Father. And so, what Paul is again saying here, as far as the gospel is concerned, one God, one mediator. Between God and men, the man, man Christ Jesus. And then Paul goes on and speaks of the gospel, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. So, the mediator is not is the one through whom we have access in, into the presence of God, but it's based upon what the mediator has done for us. Namely, he's given himself as a ransom. He's offered himself. He's paid the price. He's made the payment uh, for our sins, um, and, uh, and 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 he's, he's done that to, uh, through his death upon the cross. Um, I'm just going to give you a cross reference here. Um, which I'm not able to put my finger on real quickly. Yeah, here we go. Mark 10:45. Jesus talks about he's talking to the disciples. He says the Gentiles lorded over each other. He says it will not be so among you. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. Verse 45 of Mark 10. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay? So here we have the same word, ransom. Paul says he gave himself as a ransom for all men. And Paul's really reflecting here uh, what Jesus says in Mark 10.45. The idea of a ransom is a price paid. You redeem somebody by paying a ransom price. What's the picture? Here. The picture is that you and I are in bondage. We've been sold into slavery. Jesus Christ buys us out of slavery by paying the price for, uh, for us. And that price is His own blood shed on the cross. Uh, and so He pays the price uh, to redeem us from that slavery, from that bondage. And so He's the mediator who, through His death, has paid for us that we might have fellowship with the one true living God. And again, in verse 6, Paul says he gave himself as a ransom for all men. Now notice the stress, the universal stress here. Back in verse 1, uh, that thanksgiving and prayers be made for everyone. Verse 3, God wants, our Savior wants all to be saved. And, he, and, then, and, and therefore, verse 6, Jesus Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. And so clearly what Paul is arguing here, among other things, against is the exclusiveness of saying, well, Jesus Christ just came for some. Now, Again, in the context of the heresy or the false teaching that's going on here in the life of the church, um, there's an exclusiveness within, um, with, apparently, as much as we can gather, within those uh, who are teaching the law improperly, as Paul says in chapter 1. And, uh, <clears throat> and what they're saying is, um, which was kind of a common theme among the Judaizers, was that uh, if you're going to be a true Christian, you not only have to believe in Jesus Christ, but you also have to embrace the law. Uh, and uh, for uh, for uh, you know, numbers of Paul's opponents, that meant uh, being circumcised and taking on the demands of the law. And the simplest way to identify this heresy, because it runs throughout the history of the church, and it has its own forms in our world today, and that is simply, this heresy is Christ plus. That... Jesus Christ is not sufficient for your life. You need something else. 
and it may be church membership or baptism or circumcision or whatever it may be, but your salvation is not complete until you have added to your faith in Jesus Christ. I was at one of our home groups last night and there was a, a younger man there. Uh, he's ch uh, Chinese, in, uh, comes from Hong Kong, and, and uh, he went to school in the Boston area and uh, he was not a Christian. His whole family is Buddhist. And uh, he was giving his testimony last night, uh, but he had a Korean roommate who came from several generations of Christians. And uh, although his roommate really wasn't a practicing Christian, apparently from, did you gather that, Samia, last night, that, from what he was saying? That, but he was kind of nominal, at least his roommate had some Christian background, and this young man, his name is Eric, was Buddhist. So he proposed to his nominally Christian or whatever Korean roommate, that maybe they could read the Bible together. So they began to read the Bible. Well, the upshot of it was that, that uh, Eric was converted. And after his conversion, he became, for a period of time, a part of the Church of Christ Boston. Now, the Church of Christ Boston teaches that if you are not baptized, and really specifically baptized into the Church of Christ Boston, you are not saved. Um, I was preaching uh, at a concert held on the beach. This was uh, two or three years ago. Um, and uh, uh, there were some bands, and they asked me if I would give a little gospel message. So I talked about the thief dying on the cross and saying, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom and, you know, and what have you. And I gave a little gospel message. Afterward, uh, a young man came up and confronted me and said, you don't know the gospel. You've, you, know, you haven't told the truth here today. And he was really pretty adamant about it. And he was a member of the Church of Christ Boston as it came out. Um, and he challenged all of my evangelical language. <laughs> he said, there's no place in the New Testament where, where you can find a verse that talks about asking Christ to come into your heart. And uh, anyway, he went on and on, and among other things then, of course, told me that uh, you had to be baptized in order to be saved. Um, just since I've already, since I've gotten off on this slightly tonight, let's, let's take a look at one verse um, uh, in relationship to, to, to that. And that's 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 17, Paul is writing here, and he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now notice that in 1 Corinthians 1.17, Paul makes a clear distinction between baptism and salvation. Uh, he says, Christ did not send me to baptize. If Paul identified baptism with salvation, Paul would never have written that phrase. What was the Great Commission on the Apostle Paul's life? To take the gospel to the Gentiles and to plant churches throughout the, the Mediterranean world. What did Paul do? Paul took the gospel to the Gentiles and planted churches throughout the Mediterranean world. If Paul believed that salvation was essential, or pardon me, that baptism was essential for salvation, then Paul would say, Christ sent me to baptize. <laughs> Now, he could say, Christ sent me to preach the gospel and to baptize, or what have you, but Paul would never have said, Christ did not send me to baptize. Now, what does that mean then? It means that salvation is by faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is baptism then, you know, you might say necessary? The answer is yes. All believers should be baptized. Is it mandatory? And the answer is no. It's not mandatory for salvation. Is it necessary? Is it appropriate? Is it uh, something that we all should do? Yes, absolutely. But the reason why I'm saying it's not mandatory is because, again, Paul says, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And so, whatever the external act may be, if the external act becomes identified with salvation, then that's adding to the uh, simple fact that salvation is by God's grace through Jesus Christ to be received by faith alone, and then that becomes, you know, a, a, another, you might say, example of Christ plus. So Paul clearly is dealing with that in its own addition in the church at Ephesus here, and that's why he's stressing uh, you, you might say the, the simplicity of the gospel that God wants all to be saved through the mediator who's given himself as a ransom and, uh, and, and, and Paul here is bearing testimony to that. 
And he then speaks of his own authority again in verse 7. For this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. Why does Paul say all that? Why is he, I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and stressing his authority? Again, because that's under attack by the heretics and the false teachers in Ephesus and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. So Paul, again, stresses his authority as well as his gospel, which is being undermined. And Paul, again, is calling the church to prayers and intercession and worship before God uh, for peace in the world and the progress of the gospel, bringing salvation to all. And then he summarizes the message of salvation and the ministry of salvation that has been given to him. And he, and he, and he makes, in a sense, almost makes oaths uh, in terms of underscoring the integrity of what he's teaching right now against those who would dispute this uh, and, uh, and bring it under attack. Okay, so, uh, so this is what the church is to do. The church is to pray, okay? Whatever else we do, we've got to pray. Whatever else we, we, we're called to do, and as the letter unfolds, there'll be you know, number, numerous things that Paul addresses, but this is top priority, namely to, to pray and, and, to, uh, and to intercede. Having said that, the biggest weakness of the Coast Vineyard is the absence of prayer and intercession. I'm really convinced of that. And one of the things, let me just encourage you and, 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 and you encourage me to really pray that God would, would, would bless some in our church to really undertake the ministry of intercession on behalf of the whole body and, be, and be able to facilitate that more and more for the whole church to draw us more into intercession. And uh, we've been talking as recently as Tuesday afternoon in our staff meeting about maybe some ways that we could facilitate that. And one of the ways may be, and we're, we're talking about this, maybe having a card that everybody would fill out on Sunday morning and, 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 uh, and Sunday evening writing in prayer requests. And then that we would undertake to, to begin to pray for those requests as a staff during the week uh, and discipline ourselves to do that. But there's some real holes here in our spiritual armor. And I think that the weakness then expresses itself in a lot of different dimensions in the life of the church. But this isn't just a call for a few, you know, especially really gifted people to pray. This is a call for all of us to pray. So as you think about this, pray, uh, pray for the Coast Vineyard, but not just for our church, but for the churches in the area, you know, for God's church. That, that God would put upon us a burden of intercession. It's really interesting, isn't it? Is there a correlation between violence in the streets and the prayerlessness of Christians? Is there a correlation between the weakness of authority in our nation and its own and its corruption, its moral corruption, you know, and the cynicism about po politicians and what have you? Is there a correlation between the prayerlessness of Christians? This passage would suggest it, wouldn't it? And so again, and I, I, this is a real exhortation of me tonight. I'm rebuking myself to quit, you know, making jokes about Clinton, <laughs> and uh, you know, and, and and what have you, and kind of getting my cynicism out in this way, you know, and start praying, you know, in, really intentionally, for all those in authority. Do you ever play, pray for the police? You probably do, and you it's probably like. Lord, please don't let that patrol car see how fast I'm. Please protect me from that radar, you know, up there. That's probably the way we pray for the police. We have a, a really a, a, a dear, dear brother in our church who's a member of the San Diego Police Department. And I've gone riding with him once in the police department ride-along program. I'm going to do it pretty soon again. But, uh, but uh, it was really fun for me to be with him for several hours in downtown San Diego, just zipping around. That's part of the fun is just, you know, to be in one of these cars, patrol cars, and they can just, you know, floor it and take off and, you know, race through the downtown area. You know, you kind of feel like it's exciting and you feel like, you you know, you're important or something like that. You know, you can race around, you know, and they're all, all in touch with each other. They, they've got computers in all the cars now. And by the way, this is just for your information. If you're driving along and there's, you know, there's a cop car behind you, they can punch your license plate in and get a complete readout on your whole history, uh, not just in the state of California, but they can punch now into a national system. And so you, if you've had a tic ticket in New Orleans, you know, they can find that out or you have an unpaid, you know, something or other floating around out there. And, uh, and they can also get the registration of the car and, you know, and, and, you know they're, they're well equipped for the job that they do out there on the streets. But 
But again, the question is, you know, and, and it becomes personal to me because of, uh, of this brother in our church. His name is Ron Glass. And just praying for these uh, people whose lives are on the line every day out there. It's really pretty scary. It's kind of exciting, but it's also scary because every single situation that they get into poses a, a real threat to them. So, so authority in all, in a sense, all of its levels ought to be the objects of our intercession. I'm really teaching this to myself tonight. I need to sit right down and receive this and say, "Yes, Lord, I'm hearing you. I'm hearing you. You know, please forgive me for, for being so, you know, weak in this area of my life." And, and. Uh, Anyway, okay, so that's, that's, that's number one. Now let's go on to, to, uh, to men. Verse 8, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. This, of course, justifies the vineyard. Uh, prayer stands. <laughs> so, I mean, if you stand and lift your hands, it's okay. A matter of fact, interestingly enough, this was the, the basic Jewish position for prayer in the first century. The Jews prayed standing with their hands open toward heaven. You know, and, and why do you pray that way? Or why was, why was this? Because, again, the basic understanding was that I am coming into the presence of a great king as a petitioner, and I'm coming, you know, bringing my petition to him. And it's a, it's a sign, really, of supplication. Holding your hands out to God is a sign of supplication. You know, really pouring yourself out as you bring your request to him. But uh, I'm not making... You know, a case here tonight, it, Paul says, you know, lift up holy hands in prayer, you men, and, and what have you. But I, I, I don't want to be legalistic about this. You can pray kneeling, seated, standing. Um, I remember reading a, a, a poem in Billy Graham's book, Peace with God, years ago. And the, the point of the poem was that these men were arguing about what's the, or these people were arguing about what's the best position for prayer. You know, what, what's really the most honoring to God as you pray. And the point of the poem was, Finally, some guy says, he says, well, he says, I don't know about the rest of you, but I fell down this well. I was upside down, and I prayed the best prayer I've ever prayed in my whole life. So God knows our hearts, and that's the point. But, 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 uh, but Paul says, again, we're, we're to be, I, I think the whole, lift, lifting holy hands in prayer really is this, this point again of, of intercession, of, uh, of, uh, of petitioning God. And uh, without anger or disputing, and again, that's a polemical jab at, at the false teaching going on in Ephesus. I'm pretty confident of that. Again, there's, there's these power struggles, there are the divisions and disputes, and, uh, and, and Paul says no to that and yes to, again, the peaceful and godly life that, that God is calling us to live. So, so men specifically are called to prayer. The church in general is called to prayer, and then men specifically are called to prayer in verse 8. Now in verse 9, Paul then turns to women within the context of worship in the body of Christ. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety. Now the word, uh, both of these words, decency and propriety, have a sexual, uh, kind of a sexual uh, tone to them. So uh, 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 modesty and, and decency, basically what Paul is saying here is women dress in such a way that you, uh, I, I suppose maybe a, a way to express this would be women dress conservatively so that you don't inadvertently uh, uh, create a context of lust for men by the way that you dress. I think that's what Paul's intention is here. And, and let me, let me, Add, then make a comment about it because, of course, this is a this is difficult. Is there a dress Christian dress code now? You know what kind of bathing suits can you wear to the beach and all those kinds of things. But uh, let me say this: that again, part of what's at issue here, and that's why Paul goes on and then talks about women specifically in terms of of, uh, of, of teaching and, and having authority and what have you, is that uh, that that there has been a transcendence of traditional roles and behaviors, and that there are some who are claiming, you know, gosh, well, I've entered into this new spiritual life, and I've been filled with, with, the, with the Holy Ghost, and I don't have to worry about what people think anymore. And I can dress any way that I want. Back in 1 Corinthians in chapter 11, women are letting their hair down literally. And Paul says, women, you know, keep your hair up. Don't let your hair down. And the reason for that quite clearly, is that prostitutes let their hair down and walked out on the streets unveiled, and so that was a sign, in a sense, of their, you know, 
you might say, sexual liberation, but it really wasn't. It was a sign of their promiscuity and availability. And so women in worship were apparently beginning to do this as kind of as a statement of their freedom. Well, we're free to dress any way that we like. And, and bluntly, I don't think we are free. But I think that that you know, applies to women, but I think it also applies to men. And this is a culture in which men are now dressing and behaving every bit as seductively or as blatantly, you know, sensually as women ever dreamed of. And so you can take this both directions now as far as I'm concerned. It has a universal application in our culture. Namely, modesty and sobriety is to be kind of the style of our, of our dress and our behavior. Um, what do you think about that? That sound old-fashioned and like an old fogey? I get, you, you could blame Paul and being. See, I mean, it's, re, it's really hard, you know, it, it is, because you're really talking about, you know, lines here, you know, and you, what do you do? Do you go around to new converts and tell them it's kind of like putting bras on the, you know, on the natives, you know, in Africa? Do you, do you go around, you know, telling new converts you, you can't wear that dress and what have you? You know what I believe about this? I believe that the Lord, little by little, will convict our hearts on things, and He'll take care of these things, you know, and so that we don't need to go around shaping people up and then really oppressing them with our, you know, views. And what may be just really, um, in a sense, modest to one person may not be to another. And that then comes into the condition of your heart, doesn't it? You know, and, and that's something that, that we absolutely cannot control. You know, I mean, we have to deal with that within ourselves, you know. And so what may be uh, very modest apparel for one person may not be for another. And how are we to judge all these things? So I think what we need to do is just kind of speak to the biblical truth and then let God take it from there and not get into uh, being wardrobe policemen and police women in the church. And also, I think that, uh, I think too, as we pursue godliness within within our church, you know, God's purpose for us and what have you. I've noticed this. As people grow in Christ, certain things that may be questionable in a certain sense just begin to fall away without you know, a lot of heavy-handedness because God's changing them on the inside. And you know what? As the Lord changes you on the inside, it will begin to change the outside. And so I think this needs to be taught, but then it needs to just be trusted in the teaching that God will do this. Okay, so I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair. <laughs> okay, any braided hair here tonight? Um, and, and again, what Paul's talking here is not that like braids aren't to be, you know, Christians can't wear braids, but he's, he's describing, again, the, the kind of luxurious and sensual dress of, of, uh, of, 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 in its pagan context. Not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. Um, so again, I would say that the biblical standard in matters of dress normally is 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 modesty and um, um, and 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 moderation, and that seems to run through the whole thing. I, having said that, I've got to say, I was watching. Did, did anybody see? Um, there was a show on television, I think it was last night, where black gospel singers were, re, were giving their awards. Did you see a little of it? And, 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 and these women were dressed beautifully, you know, but, and, but it was a total fashion show. You know, and there are times for that, that that's really appropriate. And if, you know, if, in a sense, if you were getting an award as a, as a black gospel singer and you showed up, you know, in some rag, you know, that you'd got at the Salvation Army. It would be inappropriate to the setting. And you'd be then outstanding out in that setting. Whereas if you showed up, you know, with your hair all done up in a sequin dress and what have you, you would be appropriate to the setting. I think we need to be appropriate to the setting. I'm kind of off the scriptures at this point. But I'm, you know, obviously I'm trying to work this around. So, so I won't bum you all out, you know. Uh, so, so, so what Paul is saying here essentially is that I, I believe this is what he's saying is that we're we're not to dress in such a way that we you know stumble people by our dress in terms of sensuality, and our life is to be adorned with good deeds. So uh, and, and again, he's speaking this specifically to women. In saying this to women, which I don't think in any way absolves men from the same analogous responsibility, I think again 
that Paul is addressing abuse here in, 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 in Ephesus. That women with a fall, kind of have taken the theme of Christ has set me free and liberated me then to go to excess with it. And so Paul's since kind of re, re, redirecting them and, and kind of rebalancing the church. Which takes us then to verse 11. And this is, this is, this is the most troublesome part of this. We can kind of work our way through the other and think, okay, well, in principle, how does this apply to our lives today? You know, and how, I mean, how this would apply to, uh, to peasants living in Peru would be different than how it would apply to uh, you know, a, a Christian family living in, uh, on the Upper East Side in New York City or again, black gospel singers, you know, receiving their awards on national television. You know, how, you know, and, and, and God has to make the application. Okay, verse 11. Now Paul goes on in terms of uh, the positive teaching. Men pray here, women adorn your lives with, with good deeds. Uh, and all are to pray, but men are especially to pray in such a way that they're healing to the church and not divisive, and women are to... The, the, the real adornment of our lives is not to be the external, but the internal, which expresses it in good deeds, not in, in a sense, in high fashion, if you will. Okay, verse 11. <clears throat> See, let, let, me, let me stop again. I, <laughs> I'm struggling with this tonight, so you have to struggle with me. See, I mean... See, I mean this is a classic passage, and there's, there's another one in First Peter, you see, which has been taken by the church in certain cultural periods, then to set down a whole kind of dress code. And there are whole denominations in this country where if you wear any jewelry whatsoever, you are considered to be worldly. And it's based on this text, you know, and, and, and another one in First Peter. So if you wear any gold, any pearls, any, you know, uh, you know, Chanel, uh, you know, uh, you know, you know, fashion dress, you know, or whatever. And, uh, you, you know, th then, then you're worldly and you're in violation of what Paul is teaching here. So, on the one hand, I think we have to avoid this kind of judgmental spirit, which is exactly the contrary to what Paul intends here. He wants us to live peaceably and, you know, and, and, and in unity and, and, and what have you. Uh, and, and to try to say, okay, what is the principle that operates behind the, the specific applications? And that's, in a sense, that's what I'm trying to get, get to. And that is that the adornment of our lives, regardless of how we dress, or regardless of where we are economically and culturally, is to be uh, in good works. Uh, you know, the ministry of our lives before the Lord is to be in prayer and intercession. You know, not in anger and divisiveness and what have you. So, you know, what Paul is saying here are a few things, I think, that are enduring to the church, and then we have to dis ask the Lord how we apply them into our culture today. I mean, see, I mean, people have asked me, you know, could, Don, can a Christian own a Mercedes Benz? You know, uh, you know, can you drive a, you know, 500 SL or whatever, you know, uh, and, and, and my answer is, I don't know the answer to that question. You know, you'd have to ask, I mean, I can't afford it, so that's not an issue in my life, you know. Or, you know, can a Christian live in Beverly Hills? I mean, shouldn't all the Christians be living really in substandard housing, uh, you know, on the fringes of Los Angeles? You know? <laughs> or, you know, or can, can a Christian really live in La Jolla? You know, I mean, even in a, you know, one-room bachelor apartment, you know, I mean, it's, it's too nice in La Jolla, right? I mean, all the Christians should be, you know, uh, and I won't name any communities, but, you know, they should be someplace else, you know. I mean, and these kinds of questions, but... You know, and I used to say, somewhat kiddingly, but not entirely kiddingly, you know, well, you can own a, a VW and have a, you know, have a Rolls-Royce attitude toward it. I mean, anything can be an idol in your life. And can a Christian live in Beverly Hills? Well, I thank God there are Christians living in Beverly Hills. And again, you know, as well as La Jolla or wherever, you know, and I think that, that we need to live moderately and appropriately to the culture that God has placed us in. And I have, you know, I mean, there's, you know, I've known, you know, over the years here in La Jolla, uh, men who, families who've been incredibly wealthy, and I've known people who live, have lived literally on the streets in La Jolla, you know, and, and there's the whole range here. And we just need to determine in our own hearts and not judge each other as to how God would have us live and what our responsibility is before him. But I think this, the standards, the biblical standards behind the, applica the specific application stand. Okay. Well, anyway, verse 11. Here we go. 
<clears throat> a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Okay, well, I'm going to take this apart now slowly, somewhat slowly. And we're too emotional, too fickle, and too stupid to be educated in the law, to be taught in the law. And so only men were to be taught. Now, one of the radical things that happened as the gospel you know, first penetrated the Jewish world and then the Gentile world was that women began to be instructed in, in the faith. So, uh, so what may stand beha- behind verse 11 is one view, uh, namely that women shouldn't learn. So Paul may well be addressing that by the positive teaching a woman should learn. And one of the possible, and this is, again, we can't prove this, but one of the possible sources of heresy going on in the church may well have come from women who have felt liberated, rightly so, because uh, of the gospel, but then who are using this new free, found freedom, you might say, in, in dress and in, uh, in, 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 in teaching and what have you, in, in, in behaviors that are inappropriate or, uh, at, at a minimum, premature. So Paul... so. Those who are then in reaction to, uh, to, to the liberated women, so to speak, may be saying, wait a minute, in the synagogue, women weren't even taught, and these women shouldn't be taught. So Paul may well be intending this to be, to be addressed to those who would counter this by saying a woman should learn. But she needs to learn in quietness and in submission to, to those who are teaching her. Okay, that's not really controversial. We believe that everyone needs to be instructed in the gospel. Verse 12 then becomes the critical verse. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. Now, uh, again, the traditional view of this, and then the, the, in a sense the justification that Paul gives about Eve sinning and being deceived and, and what have you, in, in uh, uh, Adam being formed first and, and then Eve sinning first in verses 13 and 14. The traditional view, and this is, has a long history in the church, of course, is that men have been given by God a position of authority or headship over women, and for a woman to, uh, to uh, step into that uh, position of authority uh, and teaching is to usurp uh, God's order, and therefore, uh, among other things, the clergy must be male. Now, uh, what you need to, to, to recognize, while this isn't true in the Protestant church, that in the Roman Catholic church and in the Orthodox church, Greek and Russian and what have you, this is standard teaching today. So what we have to say is that a majority of those who profess to be Christians follow the, the teaching here literally and exclude women from positions of teaching or authority, sacramentally or doctrinally, within the church. And this also has been largely true of the Protestant church until, um, until the Azusa Street Revival. <laughs> Uh, and the start of, and, and the and, and the beginning of the Pentecostal movement. And the Pentecostal movement began to change that dramatically. And long, long before the civil rights movement and then the other gay liberation, women's liberation, what have you, long before that ever appeared in the 60s, there was another stream that appeared out of the great Pentecostal revival that began in, in Azusa Street in 1906, and that was women stepping into positions of ministry in the church. Um, and there's some some you know, way back in, 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 in early church history, there's some, some of that, but it, but it dies out uh, fairly quickly. So, here's the critical issue of verse 12, and you can make your own decision on this. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach. Now, I do not permit is a present tense verb. But there are two ways that the present tense verb in Greek can be employed. One is as a temporal present. Now let me translate it for you as a temporal present. I am not presently permitting a woman to teach or to have authority over men. That's the temporal present. Now the other way that the present tense verb can be employed in Greek is as a timeless present. I am never ever permitting a woman to teach or to have authority over men. That's where the battle rages. In other words, is Paul correcting an abuse in the church for the present, or is he establishing a principle for the church for all times? And the verb tense itself doesn't answer the question. 
because it's a present active indicative which can be taken either as as, as temporal, temporary, or timeless, forever and ever. And, uh, and, and commentators largely, of course, come down on the side of the timeless present, and that's the, the history of the church. The question is, is that Paul's intention? And, you know, where the battle then rages is, is Paul, again, correcting an abuse going on where women have prematurely stepped into teaching roles because of this newfound freedom in Christ, where they haven't been properly instructed. And so is Paul saying, wait a minute, you women, you need to learn in submissiveness and silence and what have you before you teach. And one of the arguments, current, current arguments is, uh, in terms of Paul saying, I want women to learn, is that, that it was basically understood in antiquity that learning is for the sake of teaching. And so if Paul wants the women to be instructed, he assumes that they someday will be teaching. Now the answer to that objection, which is, which is a, a good objection to saying women should not teach is that Paul is not prohibiting women from teaching here at all. He's simply saying that they should not teach or have authority over men. So women are to teach women. Women are permitted to teach children and what have you. So the question is, can a woman ever teach a man in the church within God's order and design? Or must women be restricted to teaching children and other women? That, that's, that's the issue. And, and the issue hangs uh, ultimately on, on, on how you take this verb. I am presently not permitting or I am never ever permitting a woman to teach. Again, those who argue that Paul is only correcting an abuse for the present and not establishing a principle for all times uh, say that if Paul were, uh, were doing it, he wouldn't say I... Um, it would be much more likely that he would say... Um, I, rather than saying, I do not permit a woman, I am not permitting a woman, which is a kind of an allowance. It's, it's kind of a, it's not the strongest way he could express it. He would, he would simply say, don't do it, namely as an imperative. Don't let women teach or have authority over men. But he says, I am not permitting, which again would give credence to this being a temporary injunction, corrective to the church rather than instructive to the whole church forever and ever. Yeah, Kevin. Yeah, the well, you know, again, uh, the question is whether Paul intends here to ground this. Uh, again, the reference to Adam and Eve doesn't... Um, um, the, the question is, uh, in verse 13, when Paul says, for Adam was formed first and then Eve, is Paul here offering, a, the, you might say, a, a dogmatic basis for this, or is he simply using... This, you might say, uh, in, in a weaker sense, is kind of illustrative, maybe more than illustrative, but less than, you know, a solid theological foundation for a, a permanent injunction against women teaching. So, again, the commentators debate this. Uh, <clears throat> what, what Paul is saying in verse 13, again, if you want to make the argument for women being able to teach in the church, teach men in the church, uh, Paul says, Adam was for, uh, formed first, then Eve, in verse 13. So Adam has the priority in creation, okay? And Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner, so Eve has the priority in the fall. <laughs> okay, but, verse 15. Now, the question is, does Paul now reverse this by simply saying, but... Now, let me translate this literally, because the NIV does not translate it literally and footnotes it to indicate that. But women, and it's not in the plural, it's in the singular. But the woman will be saved. That's the literal translation. It's the standard word for salvation. But the woman will be saved through childbearing. Now, one of the... Uh, this word childbearing... Uh, can also be translated, the same word can be translated through the birth of the child. Which is, which is the way that I would take it. Because the idea that women are saved through bearing children is crazy. I mean, I don't know a single woman who would say that my salvation is coming by my pregnancy. You know, so... And, and, and Paul doesn't, and, and again, the, the, the Greek doesn't say women, it says woman. But a woman will be saved 
through the birth of the child. And then if they, then Paul goes from the singular to the plural, if they continue. So probably the best way to understand this, and it's very difficult, but the best way to understand this is what Paul is saying is, Adam was made first, then Eve, Eve sinned first, you know, parentheses, then Adam. He doesn't refer to Adam. Uh, Eve was deceived and became a sinner, but it's through woman that the Messiah came into the world. So the birth of the child refers to Jesus Christ and his coming into the world. So it's through, although the woman brought sin into the world, it's the woman who also brings the Messiah into the world. So while she was the you know, you might say, first agent, and then Adam followed immediately, of sin entering, she's also the agent of redemption coming. And so that then balances the whole thing out. And, uh, and, and so through the birth of the child, uh, the woman will be saved or, or is the vehicle of salvation. And then he, but then he quickly modifies it and it's somewhat grammatically difficult if they continue, so the qualification, of course, is salvation doesn't come even by you know, being connected to the, to the line of, uh, of, of the female gender that brings the Messiah into the world, uh, but through faith, love, holiness, and, and, uh, and uh, propriety, as the NIV, or sobriety. So, so again, um, what Paul seems to do here... Or, what I, I see Paul doing here theologically is to say uh, that, uh, yes, uh, 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 men have a priority in God's purpose and design, but women, uh, um, they have a priority in God's purpose and, and design in terms of bringing salvation beyond, beyond the, the work of creation. Um, Difficult, huh? <laughs> it, it is difficult, uh, and I don't want to minimize the difficulty. And I think that, that let me just say a couple things, and then we'll bring this to a close tonight. One is, um, you know, historically, what's happened in the rise of of, uh, of women, uh, women's liberation and its impact on the church, and women moving into positions of leadership and things like that, is that there's, there's been a, necess a necessity to re-examine a lot of these texts in terms of the way they've been traditionally interpreted. In that re-examination, then, other alternatives have been proposed, which are fair to the text. Um, and and that, that then creates a kind of, you know, anxiety, because uh, wherever tradition is being challenged, you know, then the question is, well, what... You know, what does the text teach, number one? And number two, then how do we apply that into our situation today? And, uh, uh, and as I say, th this text can be argued either way. It can be argued that women should never, ever have a, a teaching authority in the church and that they should simply learn and then, and then you know, carry what they learn into other areas of the life of the church, but certainly not, uh, not teaching men. Um, that, that can be argued from the text. And, and what can also be argued from the text is that that, uh, that wasn't Paul's ultimate uh, intention. And again, because the text can be interpreted either way, if you argue that that wasn't Paul's ultimate intention, then what you have to do is you have to go to the other letters of Paul where he writes about women and try to understand this text in the larger context and then the larger context of Jesus' whole relationship with women and what it meant for the gospel to come you know, and, and, and transform so much of human life. Um, I want to say two things as I bring this to a conclusion tonight. Number one, um, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are never given by gender. And they are never to be ministered by gender. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. I think men have a primary responsibility to disciple men and women to disciple women, and I think there are obvious reasons for that. But at the same time, you know, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, go back to Acts chapter 2. On the day of Pentecost, the prophecy from, from Joel, you know, your, your, your uh, men servants and maid servants will, you know, receive visions and dreams and prophetic utterances and what have you. And, uh, and, and so uh, the division that goes back to uh, the judgments that God brought in the fall against 
of both Adam and Eve are really, uh, those divisions and that judgment is lifted in the gospel. And, uh, and so with the outpouring of the Spirit, there's obviously a, a brand new thing taking place in the life of the early church. And women who have been taught to be inferior, not only submissive and subservient to men, but inferior, are suddenly discovering their own uniqueness and their identity in Christ, and they're moving into, into ministry. And this is scattered behaviorally throughout the whole New Testament, from the women who bankrolled Jesus' ministry in Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 1, uh, you know, through women uh, ministering with Paul and what have you, and Paul greeting uh, women and commending them for their ministries and what have you. So you have this significant change going on in the life of the early church. So this text, I think, needs to be seen in that context. Um, at the same time, uh, let me say one other thing, too, and that is that uh, for myself, just personally, uh, there have been women who've had a very, very significant ministry in my life of teaching. And so I have to admit that that biases you know, me as I come to this text because I have the bias of the experience of having had significant women minister to me. Uh, and and I'll, I'll just end with referencing one. And her name, uh, she's now with the Lord, her name was Henrietta Mears. And Henrietta Mears was a chemistry teacher in St. Paul, Minnesota, when she was invited to become the director of Christian education at the First Presbyterian Church of Hollywood in the early 1930s. She accepted that invitation and built the Sunday school at Hollywood Presbyterian Church to 6,000 members in the Sunday school alone. Uh, <clears throat> she um, was a very remarkable woman. She was greatly gifted by God. And uh, she founded Gospelite Press, which, along with its Regal Book Division, is one of the major publishing companies in the United States. She founded Forest Home Christian Conference Center, which is above Redlands in the San Bernardino Mountains and serves probably 40,000 people a year and is the largest Christian conference center in Southern California. Campus Crusade for Christ began in her living room. She lived right on the, on the edge of, uh, of, the, of the campus at UCLA and uh, uh, Bill and Vonette Bright were converted through her ministry and she invited them to move into her home near the, the Westwood campus and uh, the original Campus Crusade teams that went into the sororities and fraternities to share Christ with college students on the campus included uh, Bill and Vonette and Miss Mears and some other uh, people who are on the staff of the Hollywood Presbyterian Church where she was serving at that time. And Campus Crusade came out of her ministry. The Four Spiritual Laws has probably been the most universally used tract in the history of the church. Um, and the four spiritual laws which Bill Bright put together was based upon Miss Muir's teaching because she was a chemistry teacher, uh, a high school chemistry teacher, and she would invite students who were considering becoming Christians to come into the laboratory of faith. And she would say, just as there are natural laws which govern the, the, the created universe, so there are spiritual laws that govern our relationship with God. And here they are. You know, law number one, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Law number two, you're missing it because you're a sinner. Law number three, Christ died for your sins. And law number four, accept him into your life and you can discover God's wonderful plan for your life. And this was the way Miss Mears shared the gospel. It was based on her being a chemistry teacher. So Bill Bright took that up and put it into the form of the four spiritual law booklet that Campus Crusade and others have distributed, you know, all around the world. It's been translated probably into a hundred different languages by now. And uh, Miss Mears went to be with the Lord in 1963. Prior to her, her uh, death, um, I had the privilege of knowing her and, uh, and, and, and being a, sitting under her teaching and what have you. And I've got to say that she was really an absolutely remarkably gifted teacher. Uh, she has, one of her books is a, is a um, I forget the exact title now, but it's something like... Uh, what the Bible says, or something like that. Anyway, it's a it's a summary with outlines and what have every book of the Bible. It's it's been uh, reprinted, uh, you know, endless times. It's sold more than a million copies. Billy Graham has given it away on his broadcast. And Billy Graham came to Forest Home just before he launched his crusade. This was years ago in Los Angeles, which was the turning point in Billy's career. 
and uh, he was struggling with the whole issue of the authority of the Bible in his life, whether he could just accept on faith that the Bible was the absolute inerrant word of God. And at Forest Home, Billy finally got down on his knees and just uh, uh, gave himself to the Lord and told him that by faith he would accept the Bible as God's word and he would preach it as God's word from that point on. And it was a major turning point in the whole history of Billy's ministry. And Billy Graham said of Henrietta Mears, he said, no person has had a greater influence on my life with the exception of my mother. Now, so, I, you know, I come out of just even that relationship with Miss Mears, and I have to say that that predisposes me to see this text not as an absolute text for all time, but, but as, a, as a corrective text for what was going on in the church at that time. So I just say that to you in closing tonight, and uh, and I'll just you know you can take it from from there and see you know how you know how how God speaks to you about it. And I, and I know that Christians are divided on this subject, but I think that one thing one thing that I must say is that I believe that uh, that one of the great tragedies in the church has been to not welcome and receive the gifts that God has given through women. I think the church has been immeasurably weakened because of that. And I really believe that, uh, that we need to identify whatever gifts are that God is giving to the church and put them into ministry. Um, I really believe that. And I think the church will be the stronger for it. As far as, you might say, authority in the church is concerned, I think the biblical model is the family. And... I don't want to live in a matriarchal society, but I don't really want to live in a patriarchal society either. I want to live in a society where men and women are functioning together in their God-given roles and relationships. And so I think it's appropriate, um, and we've always you know, had it in some way or another in the Coast Vineyard, you know, to have a pastor, a man as pastor, in that central role in, in, in the church. Um, and I think that's appropriate at the same time, I think it's very appropriate to have women on the staff, uh, not exclusively to minister to women either, but that's a primary function, and we have that in Jinx Whitehill now on our staff. We've had it in Carroll Cannon in the past. And I think we've been a stronger church. I know we've been a stronger church because of it. So um, here endeth the teaching tonight on Second Timothy chapter 2. <laughs> We'll go on and talk about elders and deacons next week. Won't that be exciting? You can hardly wait for that. Oh, goody. Second Timothy chapter 3, elders and deacons. I can hardly wait for that. <laughs>